This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, September 4th, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. In Licensed to Lie, attorney Sidney Powell takes readers through a series of disturbing events, missteps, and cover-ups in our federal criminal justice system. According to Powell, the malfeasance stretches across all three branches of government. She spoke at the Cato Institute in July. The main premise underlying the book is that prosecutors have an ethical and legal and constitutional obligation to disclose evidence that is favorable to the defense. There are legal reasons for it. The Supreme Court held in Brady versus Maryland that it's a constitutional obligation fundamental to due process. And then as a practical matter, prosecutors have all the cards. They are the, usually the, or their representatives, the agents, the police officers, whoever, are the first people on the scene if there is an immediate crime, or they're the ones that, who, have, who have conducted an investigation into allegations to begin with or put together all the pieces to charge a crime. They have control of the evidence. They have control of the forensics. They have control of the expert witnesses. And in the cases discussed in the book, they had even more control than that. One of my challenges today will be to uh, talk to you about the book without uh, spoiling any of it for you, because I do want you all to read it. It's written like a legal thriller. I wanted people to be able to read it who are not attorneys, and and for attorneys also to find it interesting and be held by it so that you can continue reading all of it, but it is all true. It contains real transcript excerpts. One person recently asked me if I had embellished. He said he was giving me about 10% leeway to embellish for the sake of you know, making it interesting, and I said, I hate to tell you, I actually toned it down. It's not embellished. So with that in mind, um, There are a number of things from the book that I I will share with you. Robert H. Jackson was one of our great Supreme Court justices, and as Attorney General, he gave a speech on April 1, 1940, that has been enshrined in legal history. He talked about the special role of a federal prosecutor and how important it is for that prosecutor to seek justice and not convictions. He explained that at its best, a prosecutor is one of the most beneficent forces in our society, but at his worst, he is one of the worst because he has such complete control over what can happen to an individual and so such broad discretion. A prosecutor can indict someone, he can have the case processed quietly and secretly, or he can expose it all to the public and uh, humiliate and and degrade the person as much as possible through the process. He has control over where the person goes to prison uh, to a large extent. The government likes to say only the Bureau of Prisons decides that, but that's not accurate at all. The prosecutor has a lot of input in that regard, and particularly in the cases discussed in the book, that's true. But yet there's no overriding supervision of prosecutors. You'll see that throughout the book also. Their discretion is virtually unbounded. We like to think of the grand jury system as being one that protects citizens, but 
it doesn't. Grand juries are virtually a rubber stamp for prosecutors. There's hardly a prosecutor in the country who couldn't get an indictment against a potato out of a grand jury if that's what they wanted to do, or get a case no-billed if that's what they want. So the checks and balances need a serious revision. It's also important for federal judges to pay very close attention to trials. It used to be, I think, at least in my experience under 10 different United States attorneys in three districts across the country over a period of 10 years, it used to be that judges could trust the prosecutors to tell them what the law was and to get the facts straight. No U.S. attorney I ever worked with would have tolerated for two seconds the behavior that I saw that caused me to write the book. They all were adamant that we do it right, that we seek justice, that we be fair, and that we carefully exercise our discretion to prosecute only cases that we had all the evidence and were sure the person was guilty. We didn't have time to go or interest in going to look to find something to pin on someone. That was not our job. No U.S. attorney I ever worked with believed that was our job. And we didn't stack counts of indictments either. We would indict on one, two, three, maybe four offenses, assuming we had the evidence racked up to prove all of those beyond a reasonable doubt with no question in our minds that that was what should happen in the case. And we produced evidence favorable to the defense that the Supreme Court called Brady evidence. That was our job. I have stood in the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit and confessed error. When the trial lawyers got something wrong, I would tell the Fifth Circuit, we screwed that up. In fact, if you run through the Westlaw system the word botched, B-O-T-C-H-E-D, you will find a quote in a footnote of a decision by Irving Goldberg where he quotes me as explaining that the DEA agents botched it. I think that's the only time the word appears in Westlaw. <laughs> and the quote was accurate. I haven't run that search in a while. Maybe I should do it again to see if anybody else has used it. But it's in there. Lots of people want to know why I wrote the book and why I wrote the book now. Uh, the answer to the first question is, I just could not stand what I had seen. It broke my heart. I have practiced before the Fifth Circuit for more than 30 years. I'm not going to say how many more. <laughs> my youthful countenance belies that alone, so I'm going to keep that secret. But throughout my practice, I have bragged on and applauded and loved the Fifth Circuit. For it to have been given the repeated chances I gave it to correct the egregious errors in this case and not to get it right was just more than I could stand. And then when the bar associations for these respective lawyers also failed to do anything about it, I felt like I had to speak up. I know I'm not the only lawyer that has seen this kind of injustice. As Judge Kaczynski said in his dissent in the United States versus Olson, there is an epidemic of Brady violations abroad in the land. It is a significant problem. It affects the fundamental fairness of all our proceedings. And if the prosecutors can do what they did, to the people discussed in this book who are Mer were Merrill Lynch executives 
One was a United States senator. Others were other business executives, all of whom had led stellar lives to the best of everyone's knowledge, worked in their communities, contributed to charities, done everything right, and believed in the system. To have prosecutors literally make up crimes against them and then be able to push those through the system to conviction and imprisonment and have federal district judges in Houston and then the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals not get it right was simply heartbreaking to me. So that is why I had to write the book. I knew it had to be done by somebody with some credibility. Defendants can tell you about all the injustices they've suffered and everybody goes, oh well, you know, he was a convicted felon. So I just felt like it was time that some lawyer stand up and speak out. When I did it, I had no idea what the reception would be. I didn't know whether anybody would pay the slightest bit of attention or not. It turns out people are paying attention. And so I thank each of you for being here to pay that attention to this issue because it is so important. And there but for the grace of God go any one of us. If they can do what they did to these people, as Brendan Sullivan has said, to United States Senator Ted Stevens, to four Merrill Lynch executives from Wall Street and Houston and Dallas, they can do it to anyone. The reason I wrote it now is because we have given the legal system every chance to work, and it failed to do so. And we also gave the bar associations every chance to do something about it vis-a-vis -vis the lawyers, and the bar associations did nothing. The Texas bar bounced the grievance we filed against the Texas lawyer like a Super Bowl. I mean, it practically came back by return mail, even though it was written by Bill Hodes, the co-author of the Law of Lawyering, and considered one of the top three legal ethics experts in the country. It was a 30-page grievance with numerous citations to all the ethical rules and citations to cases and a definitive explanation of the facts that showed a grievable offense. And the Fifth Circuit opinion, which found that, yes, the prosecutor suppressed evidence favorable to the defense, but it didn't matter. So when the Texas bar bounced that, I actually thought about sending them my law license. I haven't done that because a number of friends urge me to continue practicing, which I'm not sure I can do, but I'm still working on that possibility. And then we also filed with the New York bar against Andrew Weissman and with the DC bar against Catherine Rumler. Uh, the DC bar just kind of swept it under the rug. The New York bar, Weissman at the time was general counsel deputy director of the FBI. So the Department of Justice was defending him against the ethical charges. They kept it for about 14 months, and then without giving us notice, the New York Bar punted it to the Office of Professional Responsibility within the Department of Justice. Yes, you heard that right. The Department of Justice was defending Andrew Weissman, and the New York Bar punted it to the Department of Justice to decide. Well, you can pretty much figure out how the Department of Justice decided that one. In less than a week, the Office of Professional Responsibility, ironically named, within the Department of Justice, now ironically named, 
dismiss the grievance. So I finally sat down. I said, okay, you've either got to put up or shut up. So I decided to write the book. Uh, that's a long explanation of why and when I wrote the book, but that is the fundamental story. The book tells the story of any number of high-profile prosecutions. It tells it as a human story because I also want everyone, including judges, to understand the human toll it takes when prosecutors violate their oath, the Constitution, and the rules of ethics. So there is a very human story that runs throughout the book of my client in particular, uh, some of Ted Stevens, and some of one of the prosecutors, maybe more of the prosecutors than just one. It tells the story of the Arthur Anderson debacle. Most everyone thought Arthur Anderson was horribly guilty. I have to confess that I also, as soon as I started hearing about the Enron disaster, I knew the ramifications on people across the country. Uh, millions of people lost a lot of money. Some people lost all their savings. It was horrible. It was an outrage. And most of us, at least from everything that was reported in the press, assumed that everybody that had anything to do with Enron was guilty. I was one of those. Until I dug into the record of the Arthur Anderson case, when Arthur Anderson asked me to consult uh, when their petition for rehearing was due, no, their petition, their reply brief was due in the Fifth Circuit. So they'd already filed their opening brief, but decided to consult additional counsel in the preparation of their reply brief. So that's when I got involved. I think we had 14 or 30 days to get the reply brief filed. The record was massive. Fortunately, Maureen Mahoney at Latham and Watkins was lead counsel because they had a mega staff to divide it up and dive into the mega record at the time. But it didn't take me long to look at it to wonder why the indictment charged what it charged. The actual offense against Anderson was alleged as witness tampering, which requires an element that I couldn't figure out how they were going to prove. And then when I read the jury instructions, they had altered, the prosecutors had persuaded the district court judge in Houston to alter the pattern jury instructions. Pattern instructions are approved for every circuit for many criminal offenses. If you use the pattern instruction, it's going to be affirmed on appeal. It's already been covered. When judges deviate from the pattern instruction, I mean, that alone raises any number of red flags. There is rarely a reason to do that. But here they persuaded the court to do that. Between the indictment and the jury instructions, I just knew that there was no way Anderson should have been convicted. Turns out, as I dug into it more, the jury was out for 10 days before they returned a verdict of conviction. The company, Arthur Anderson, was destroyed immediately upon indictment. They represented 2,300 publicly traded companies. They had 85,000 employees worldwide. So 85,000 jobs were destroyed. The indictment had to be sealed for a week so the SEC could work behind the scenes to avoid upheaval in the markets. And then once the case went to the Fifth Circuit, the Fifth Circuit affirmed without a problem, affirmed the conviction. Finally, the Supreme Court took the case, actually took it pretty quickly by all standards, 
and reversed it nine to nothing because Anderson did not have fair warning that his conduct was criminal, witness tampering was not the appropriate statute to use, and their conduct was not criminal at the time, and the jury instructions Justice Rehnquist wrote for the unanimous court, he said it was shocking how little culpability the instructions required. They had removed all elements of criminal intent from the jury instructions. The prosecutor, primarily responsible for the Arthur Anderson indictment and conviction, is now the head of the criminal division of our Department of Justice. Her name is Leslie Caldwell. The co-prosecutor in the Anderson case, Andrew Weissman, became general counsel deputy director of the FBI. He went on back from his days on the Enron task force after convicting Anderson. They then turned their sights to the Merrill Lynch executives on Wall Street. They wanted to send a message to Wall Street. They viewed New York bankers as wise guys on Wall Street, nothing better than mobsters in suits. Nicer suits, maybe, Brioni suits, whatever. But that was the basic attitude. It was to bring down Merrill Lynch or the Merrill Lynch executives. The destruction of Anderson gave them incredible power when they went to any other organization because Merrill, for example, knew that if Merrill did not cooperate fully with the prosecution, that Merrill would receive the death penalty that Arthur Anderson had just suffered. So Merrill entered into the most egregious non-prosecution agreement I have ever seen. They agreed that their employees would say nothing publicly that disagreed at all from the task force view of the facts of the case. They agreed that if the task force wanted to interview a single Merrill Lynch employee, a task force attorney could be present. The Department of Justice task force installed an overseer within Merrill Lynch who even reviewed the bills from the attorneys so we had to be careful how we described what we were working on so as not to let the government know what that was. They named over 100 people as unindicted co-conspirators in the Enron litigation writ large, which meant that everyone had to lawyer up. Uh, if their lawyers were smart at all, they insisted that their clients plead the Fifth Amendment because if you didn't and you talked and you said anything that disagreed with the government's view of the case, you were subject to indictment for perjury and obstruction of justice. They reminded any potential defense witness of that threat daily. Some witnesses got calls during Enron-related trials as many as three times a day reminding them that they faced indictment if they got on the witness stand and testified inconsistent with the government's view of the facts. So the Enron Task Force prosecutors, Leslie Caldwell, Andrew Weissman, Matthew Friedrich, Catherine Rumler, shut down any access by the Merrill Lynch defendants to any defense witness. In fact, our own Merrill House in-house counsel, Merrill Lynch in-house counsel, was threatened with indictment. After she testified in the grand jury, her status was changed from subject to target of the investigation. 
So even she, when she took the witness stand for the defense, which the lawyers didn't know she was going to do until the last minute, was terrified. Mr. Weissman sat directly in front of her taking notes the entire time she testified. And they didn't give us any of the Brady material or evidence favorable to the defense that the Constitution required we be given. In fact, they told the court repeatedly there was no Brady material in this case. So the four Merrill Lynch executives were convicted by the Houston jury. No surprise, their lawyers were like deer in the headlights every time anything happened in the courtroom. The prosecution had witnesses who were cooperating with the prosecution under plea agreements that gave them extraordinary benefits. Their witnesses were the people who had actually stolen money within Enron. Yes, there were definitely some thieves within Enron. They all testified for the government against people who had not taken any money. In fact, as the district court judge sent the Merrill Lynch defendants to prison, he said, I realize you were just doing your jobs. The Merrill Lynch defendants did not take a penny from anyone. Merrill Lynch made $775,000 on the transaction. The Enron group made $53 million on the transaction. No one lost any money, and there were no material misstatements to the market that would qualify as a securities fraud prosecution. So instead, they indicted the Merrill defendants under the honest services theory of fraud, which alleged that the Merrill Lynch defendants had conspired with Andrew Fastow, Enron's CFO, to defraud Enron of Fastow's honest services. Yes, that would be completely laughable were it not for the fact that four Merrill Lynch executives could not get that indictment dismissed. Did they take any money or property from anyone? No, that is a traditional fraud. In fact, fraud means basically stealing. It really falls under one of the Ten Commandments, but it's gotten more complicated than that. And the indictment was something I'd never seen before. I did extensive research on it. I could not find a single case in the country from any state or federal court that served as precedent for making the conduct alleged in this case a criminal offense, much less a federal criminal offense. There wasn't one. No problem. Send them on off to prison. Motions to dismiss the indictment for failure to state an offense denied. Request for bill of particulars to tell us more about what the crime is we're supposed to have committed, denied. When the Fifth Circuit got our request for bail pending appeal, the government argued that there was no substantial issue for appeal, never mind everything was wrong in the case from the indictment through the jury instructions also. In fact, I've never seen so many issues in a criminal case as existed in the Merrill Lynch-Enron case. It was going to be hard to condense that into something, you know, 50 to 100 pages for the Fifth Circuit to decide. Usually in a criminal case, you're lucky if there are one or two good issues that might warrant reversal. I mean, we had so many in this case, we couldn't, couldn't begin to brief them all. Sidney Powell is author of Licensed to Lie. You can watch a full forum for the book at Cato.org.